Dana and Courtney. Hello. No. Hello. Oh, it's not on. It has to be on or else it doesn't work. Hello. Hello in the back row. Yeah, you can hear? Okay, thank you. Please click in if you haven't yet. Oh, I have a couple of things I wanted to start with. One relates to a book that looks like this that was found after class last time in this classroom. So if it's your book, you should come get it after class and you should not have to buy a new book. It's called The Cherokee Removal. It was purchased used at the U of A bookstore by some poor soul who now doesn't have it anymore. Um, you have Field Notebook 1 due on Friday. It is due where? <coughs> In the Dropbox. Which Dropbox? The one called Field Notebook 1. Don't submit it to the one called Homework. I don't think you can actually. Homework 1. Don't submit it to the wrong Dropbox. We will not find it. We will be confused and we will think you didn't do it. Then we will be crying and imagine it's me. So please submit it to the correct Dropbox. And Submit it um, before when? Before the start of section on Friday, right? Not by midnight. By the start of section. This is important. Um, so, well, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, I have a little sketch planned for you, a little impromptu sketch on Field Notebook 1, but I will delay it for a moment or two. Ah. When you submit your Field Notebook 1 to the Dropbox, this is going to be checked for plagiarism by Turnitin.com. And you will see the report that is generated. And what you will see is a little thing that has a percentage and then a box with a color. And the percentage, say for example, the percentage says 50%. And then the color will probably be yellow. Um, what that means is that Turnitin.com compared your document to all the other documents it's ever received and to everything that's ever been on the web and to whatever proprietary database Turnitin.com has. And it's found some text in your assignment that matches stuff it's already seen. When students see the big percentage numbers, they're the bad colors like red and yellow, sometimes they panic a little bit. But what you need to know is that that number and that color just reflect the percentage of matched text. And on many of these assignments, the percentage will be high if you do the assignment right. That's because Turnitin.com can't tell the difference between a quotation that's properly cited and a quotation that's plagiarized. So I don't want you to worry based on the number that's assigned to your report you should be able to click through and see the report, and it's going to highlight the text that it thinks matches someone else, something else. And you'll be able to see whether that looks like legitimately matching text or not. On this assignment, 
you're probably all going to use very similar section header statements. Like you might have a thing that says section one, introduction colon. Maybe everybody in the class will have that, or maybe 20% of the people in the class will have that. Guess what? That's going to match, but that's not a problem. So we use the report to peek and see if we find examples of material that's copied from someplace it shouldn't be copied from, that's not cited appropriately. On occasion, we catch the student who's submitting the field notebook that some other student wrote in a previous semester because that student gave them the file. And maybe they changed the name of the language but nothing else. That student gets in big trouble. But that doesn't surprise you, right? Yeah. So, so don't worry when you see some number on the report. We're not going to prosecute you on the basis of some number. It, it just reflects legitimate matches, which it's likely to. If you've got almost no matching, I, don't, I, I might worry a little bit about you because it means you might not be doing some of the things that we want everybody to do. There should be some matching. Uh, and at this point, most of the quotations you could take from Bishop and Fountain, for example, will probably match something someone else took. Um, they probably have our manuscripts in there. So don't, don't panic. We use this as a tool. Um, between the time the university didn't have Turnitin and the time it did, the number of plagiarism prosecutions I've had to do in my classes has dropped precipitously. And I think that is because when students know their work is being checked on Turnitin, it's much less tempting to cut case from Wikipedia, which is like 90% of the problems. Very annoying. So don't worry about that. Um, what does that say? Remember. Don't worry about the section in the phonology reading that's titled Phonological Alternations because we're not covering it in this class. So you can happily and healthily eschew it. Also, I've gotten emails from a couple of you who wanted to do the extra credit for reviewing chapters of Bishop and Fountain. That's great. Just want to remind you that that's a possibility. You just send me an email that says, hello, I'm Eric. I want to do extra credit. Um, I want to review chapter two, phonetics. But don't tell me you want to review it because you hate it. You can say that in the survey, and I won't know if you've said it. But if you say it to me directly, I'm going to be sad. So all that, that's all I need. And I can connect you to the survey. And that opportunity is open all semester. More linguistics experiments will also be opening during the semester. You can check the linguistics homepage periodically for those. And when I know that opportunities are coming up, I'll try to alert you guys. Okay. And that, whose cat is that? Madeline's. Madeline? Madeline. Yes, and he's called pumpkin. Not pumpkin. That's a vegetable. Pumpkin's cat. What's pumpkin doing? Shows her tummy. Okay. <laughs> I, I think this the person who um, Eli belongs to is called Kessa. I, but I'm not sure. 
but finishes as though it were a fricative. And these are our two affricates in English. <coughs> How do you say this one? <coughs> so if you slow it down, what, what you should be doing is putting your mouth in position to say t, but don't release it like it's tough. Just put your tongue there. And then release it like it's a sh. Then make it short. It's, a, it's a, an African, right? And then <coughs> this one, ju, like in judge, African. 
So an applicate is a sound that starts like a stop and ends like a plosive. I, I'm sorry, stop like a plosive and ends like a fricative. How confusing. I'll just say random manners to you when it's at the Starts like a plosive, ends like a fricative. Here's an opportunity for you to make up a sound not found in English. English has those two only. But you can have other fricatives. All you have to do is, uh, I'm sorry, other affricates. Jeez, <laughs> All you have to do is pick a plosive. What plosive should we pick? Let's not pick T, let's pick something else. Puh, puh, or cuh. Let's, I've got a proposal for you. Let's pick a voiced one, buh, buh. Okay, so your freaking head is gonna start with a buh, and it's gonna release <coughs> your affricate. It's gonna start with a buh, and it's gonna release like some fricative. The only rule here is that the fricative you choose should be either voiced or voiceless, whatever that plosive was. So I picked a voiced plosive buh to start with. That means I need to pick a voiced fricative. So I can pick, I can make it start like a buh and end like a buh. Everybody make that African. Buh, buh, buh. I can make it start like a buh and end like a, a buh. Start like a buh and end like a zuh. Start like a buh and end like a zh. Can that be almost all like words? Do you start with a button, you have a almost all like You have inserted a vowel between the two. So, so how now? Let's say I wanted to include the African in my language. Saying it's an African means it's, it counts as one noise, not two. And how, so how would I write that affricate? I would get this symbol and put it first, and then I would get that symbol and put it second, and then I would put the little pie bar over them. And that says, hey, I'm one thing. So you can make up affricates if you want, and that's the recipe. Pick a stop that you already have, pick a fricative that you already have, make sure they're the same with respect to voicing. Because those Africans go by so fast, you can't change voicing in the middle of them. You would, your vocal tract would burst. It would be too confusing. Does that make sense? So that's one way you could make up a, a sound that's not found in English. Right. So we did that. We Africated. <coughs> the liquids. Oh, the liquids. Delightful English. English has two sounds that fit in this category. In the big IPA chart, both of these sounds are going to be labeled approximants. But in English, we have O, O. What are you doing when you make O? But the tongue is right behind your front teeth, maybe alveolar-ish, maybe like that on your gums, above your, yeah? Oh, and then the air giving out. 
sideways, right? <laughs> lateral. Um, so to make a lateral liquid, there's only one thing you can do. You have to say, oh, oh. Uh, then we have er. So, how to describe er? Probably 50% of you, when you make an er, are taking the tip of your tongue and actually curling it upwards a little bit so it points almost palatal er, and then you're making a noise over that. Probably the other half of you are actually raising the body of your tongue in a bunch er, and making an R over that. Whatever you're doing to make er, it counts as an er, it's, we put it at alveolar. Uh, er can be all over the place, really. Um, English is one of the very few languages on earth that has an old that's different from er. So those who learn English as a second language often find it difficult to hear and produce the distinction between ol and er. And I will tell you, if you look at the acoustics of those two sounds, they're completely right to confuse them. They're just almost exactly the same. Um, so, if you know somebody who's learning English as a second language and they get their ers and olds confused, you should now be aware that they're just, what they're doing is they're making a liquid. Right? Most languages have a liquid somewhere. They can't dis distinguish between the two. Well, that's okay, because that's an Englishy thing. It's very rare to have both. Um, and, and so, it's very legitimate to get them mixed up. If you've been hearing ol and er as different sounds since you were a little baby, you probably think they sound quite different from each other. And you'll probably giggle at someone who you know, says the stereotypical thing, the fly lice thing. But it's really not. It's just because your little baby ears got trained to do that distinction. So the ol is called a lateral liquid because air is escaping sideways. The er is the other one that's not lateral, but it's still a liquid. I'm going to give you a lovely sound, not in English, that you might choose to use. It's based on the lateral liquid. And what I want you to do is make the lateral liquid and then whisper it. That sound, the voiceless lateral, is written with this lowercase l. It looks like it's wearing a belt. And that sound is found in Navajo, and it's actually found in a lot of languages of the world. But it is not found in English. So maybe it's in your language. Maybe your language has words like blah. It's easy for English speakers to make, I think, because it's just exactly the same as a regular L, except it's voiceless. All right. So those are the liquids. Why they're called liquids specifically, I could not tell you. Maybe they sound watery. At least the word liquid has an ol in it, so maybe that helps you remember. And then we have the glides, and I'm now going to just make you cry with joy about manners of articulation. Are you ready? So the glides, we've got wa and ya. The what is, I've got it twice on the table. 
it's still it's just the same wah. The problem is when putting the sound wah on this table is hard because the wah makes you do something with your lips and also some, something with the back of your tongue at velar. So it's sometimes called a labiovelar, but we'll talk about that. What's important for you to know is it's wah, right? So yah, spelled with a J in IPA for reasons that will become clear later. Letter J spells yah. Yes is the opposite of no. So everybody say the end. Yes. Okay, now. The, the letter I in IPA stands for the vowel sound E. This letter stands for E. So say this. Yes. 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 Uh oh, yes. It's the same. It's totally the same. I swear. Yes. Yes. I'll slow it down. We can do the same thing with our wah. This is the word wow, like wow, I can't believe that that glide just magically turns into a vowel E. Wow, you say it this way, wow. Ooh, wow, 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 wow. Yeah. So you see how the, the chart goes from really, really closed sounds to really, really open sounds going top to bottom. Well, the glides are the most open possible sounds that can still count as consonants. But they're actually almost exactly the same as vowels. So the next manner of articulation down is called vowel. Does that make sense? The distinction between consonant and vowel is actually a continuous one. It's not a categorical one. And glides are in, in between the two. Okay. Now, how do you find sounds for your language that are not found in English? Well, one thing you can do is you can compare this consonant chart, which is the sounds of English, to this consonant chart, which includes those sounds plus a bunch more and pick some sounds on here that aren't on there. Right? That's one way to do it. Um, so <coughs> I didn't tell you about this manner of articulation called trill. But can you imagine what that is, a trill sound? <laughs> Double R in Spanish is a <coughs> See, that's what we use regular letter R to spell in the IPA. That's why the English R sound gets turned upside down. So what then would be the bilabial trill? Two lips. Right. All right, now I'm now going to do my sketch. And in my sketch, I'm going to pretend to be a speaker of cloth. Cloth. Cloth is a language that you are imagining in your head and I'm living in your head right now. <laughs> I'm also really fluent in English. So let's say that I'm a speaker of cloth. Well, one thing you're going to do in your assignment is learn how to say cloth. Does that contain a sound that's not found in English? Yeah, cloth. What sound is that? 
That's that voiceless lateral. Right? So somebody, think about some of those, those words on the Swadesh list, those concepts, and ask me how to say that thing in my language. Who's willing to try it? Water. Wayne says, how do you say water in fluff? And I shall say, oh, yes, water. Water is, <laughs> I can't do my drill. I'll do my alveolar drill. Re. Re. And Wayne will go, what is that? And I'll say, it's re. What? Re. And then he'll go, oh, it's, it's. And the vowel is e. It's spelled with letter i, right? And so in, his, in Will's chart for his first 10 words, water will be one of the words he's collected. He's going to put the concept water. And then in IPA, he's going to write R, I. And in the notes column, he'll say, um, my consultant is very annoying and spit on me when she's in the I don't know what he'll say. But he'll say something interesting about the word. Does that help sort of? So a lot of people have been asking me, well, how do I just invent a word? Take some sounds and string them together, right? And you can make most of your words just using the sounds in English, but using them in different orders than we get in English. So you might have a word in your language like balloon. Balloon. What does that mean? Uh, that means down. I made it up. I can't be wrong. <laughs> I want you, as you're making up your words, try to, I've asked you to find three sounds that are not found in English. And I've given you some suggestions for possible consonants you can pick. You're also welcome to go through this chart and use the reading to try to figure or an interactive IPA chart online where you can hear the noise. But I would encourage you to use only sounds that you can pronounce. So you should teach yourself how to say some sounds that aren't in English. And you can, you can probably do, <coughs> right? You can probably do, you can probably do those affricates. So there's a lot of consonants you can pick from. I would really encourage you to say the words out loud to yourself. Because that will help you make sure that your words are, in principle, pronounceable words in a human language. Okay. Now, there's all, we haven't talked about all these terms. Right? We've read about them. Those are the places of articulation. Oh, and what does this say? When you build your first words, be sure you can pronounce each of them, them. Right. right. So if I were you, I'd pronounce it first and then transcribe it. Um, and that'll be really good practice. You totally learn your idea. Yes, ma'am. Uh, is, is there a collateral staff with one of those, like for the word mountain, when you say it, you say mountain, how do you write it? Your name is? Alisar. Alice? Alisar. Alisar. Alisar is a fornication already. So she noticed that in English, if I say the word mountain, say it. Mountain. mountain. 
Now say it again, slow, pay attention to where your tongue is. Mel. See, when you say it slow, you stick the T back in, huh? Mountain. Mountain. Or the word K-I-T-T-E-N. All of you guys who said kitten. We don't say kitten. You don't say mountain. You say kitten. And mountain. And that's because there's a, a rule in English for how you say T's when they're right before it boundary, and it says, just turn those guys into glottal stops. That's what that is, yeah. That's what you're saying. Now, I have trained myself as a phonetician to always say those words funny. So I say things like kitten. Nobody says kitten. Kitten, that's a, yeah, it's a different word. Or kitten. Do you guys know the movie Interview with a Vampire? Old. Brad Pitt in that movie has the worst English accent in the world. And somebody taught him that if you speak English, you put real T's everywhere there's a spelled T in English. So in that, you listen to his English accent, he says things like kitten and little girl. No, 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 no. Not even in British English do you actually do that. Silly Brad Pitt. Silly this coach. Okay. We've talked a lot about vowels. Thanks, Dana. Looking at a cat who's articulating some vowels. Um, in terms of making up, oh, I need to close the opening. You do that. In, in terms of making up maybe a phoneme or two, a vowel or two for your language that aren't that isn't found in English. You can do that too if you want. Your your non-English phonemes can be all consonants or all vowels or any mix. The English system makes it harder for us to, to create to create vowels that aren't already there than it is to create consonants that are, aren't already there. And that's because English has a big old crowded inventory of vowel sounds. We have ah. A, B, O, U, not the letters, the sounds, right? We have those sounds, those all count as vowel sounds. We also have I, E, A, U, O, and then we have U. And U gets spelled one of two ways, and you can use either of those two spellings for it. There's some very tiny technical detail differences between the two, but both of those sounds can, can just say ah. English has all those vowels. That's a lot of vowel sounds for a language. If you want to add a non-English vowel, I'll, I'll give you some candidates. There, we don't use letter Y to stand for the glide ya in IPA. Because in IPA, the letter Y stands for a kind of vowel. And if you speak German, it's a vowel you know how to say. If you don't, I'm going to teach you how to say it. It's easy. You start with the vowel E. E. Now say E, keep it going, and don't do anything with your tongue. Just make your lips round when you say it. E. E. That's, that's that. 
okay? There's this little, little eye, he's got a little cross through him, he's called barred eye. If you were a speaker of autumn, you would have that vowel. But that's okay, I can teach you how to say it. Um, just to get to this sound, you want to start with an uh. Uh, and as you say the uh, try to keep everything normal except just lift the, the body of your tongue up a smidge. Uh, 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 uh. That's far And that says peakers of Adam instead of speakers. I'm not as good at this one. But if you speak Japanese, you'll have this vowel. It's spelled with an upside down M. To make that one, start out with a genuine ooh, then keep your tongue right there, but make your lips spread out. Ooh, -y. I can't do it very well. I'm not. It's, it's, if you study Japanese, you could use that one. It's in Japanese, it's not in English. So you've got some ideas, I hope, for some consonants and vowels that you can add to your language that aren't found in English, and you won't have to panic over them, right? You're not going to panic. Okay. All right. I'm going to now flash some concepts for you, and I want you to tell me how happy you feel about them. I do not want you to use the key labeled zero. Anyone who clicks in with a zero gets no credit. So you weren't paying attention to my instructions. But otherwise, I want you to use a scale where you'll click one if you think, oh my word, I've got no clue. And I want you to click in with a nine if you feel like, oh, I could teach a little seminar on that, actually. I've got it down. And anything in between is good. So here's the first thing. Telling the difference between oral and nasal airflow. Please respond in the next five, four, three, two, one. Oh, interesting. Let's see what we've got. Oh, hey, little guy, there you go. Okay, okay. So that's pretty good. There's a fair number of you who said, yeah, I could teach a seminar on that. That's good. How can you tell whether airflow is oral or nasal when you make a, a noise? If you can make it with a closed mouth, it's probably nasal. Or if you can't make it with your nose plugged, it's probably oral. All right, good. Let's look at the next one. How about telling whether a sound is voiced or voiceless? How are you feeling about that? Remember, the, this is the one I had you put your finger on your larynx. Try to feel vibration in there. Please respond in the next three, two, one. Come on, 1.30, thank you. Ah, good. Also pretty good. I'm glad to hear that. How about those manners? Stop, plosive, fricative, liquid, nasal. Let me count that sort of as a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two
In the next three, two, one. Okay, fair enough. It's getting a little bit more complicated, right? But I, I'm confident in you guys. I think you have everything you need in order to really get this concept down. Now I'm going to move to one we haven't really talked about places of articulation for consonants, but it's in the readings. I've alluded to it. How do you feel about that, guy? <coughs> places of articulation for consonants. If you have no idea what that even means, this would be a good opportunity for a one. Let's see in the next three, two, one. Oh, we need two more people. One more. Who is Clicker 130? That is, oh, hey. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. We haven't discussed it in class. I plan to spend a little bit of time on this, not a lot, because what I find is that students are pretty good at figuring this out from the reading if you're willing to make crazy noises. Do the reading, make the noises, Tell us what messes you up, but we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit. And then I've got one more for you. What about vowels? Place of articulation for vowels. If you think you could teach a class in it, I might ask you to. In the next three. Two, one. Ah, come on. There we go. Thank you. Okay. Ooh. There are nines in the room. Excellent. Okay. Ah. Let me do one more. I've been showing you these things where, that are written in IPA, and then we've been reading little captions and stuff. How are you doing at that? If you're doing great, give me a nine. If you're doing terrible, give me a one. And please answer in the next three, two, one. Ah, excellent. Oh, good, good. Here's what I find with respect to learning to do that skill. First thing you should know is I will not ask you on an exam to transcribe an English word into IPA. You're going to write your language's words in IPA. So I want you to know how to use it for that. Right? But actually, hearing a word in English and getting an accurate transcription in IPA can be really tricky. I will sometimes give you an IPA and ask you to pick what English word that is. Okay, so I want you to develop this skill. And what I found in that, in my own experience of learning how to do that, is it's, I tried and tried and tried and it was hard, 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 and then I kept trying and then one moment it got easy all of a sudden. It's like one of those things that kicks in and so if it hasn't kicked in for you yet, don't worry, because it probably will. I just encourage you to practice. Okay? 
What's hard about it is, is the transcription of the vowels. That's the hardest part for English. And it's because English has crazy vowels. So if that's hard for you, you're smart. If you're transcribing Spanish, the vowels will be very easy. Because they will be a, a, e, o, e. Happy Spanish speakers. I want to just go through some of the um, this IPA for English chart just to make sure you're familiar with the symbols and try to help you not be overwhelmed by this. What I want to what I want you to see is that these symbols that we use to transcribe the consonants of English mostly are just the letters of the English alphabet that you would think they would be to spell that noise, right? So you should not be surprised to learn that the letter mm, M spells the sound M mm in IPA. That's what it spells in English, too, right? So all of these that I haven't blacked out, those are letters you should be able to use freely in your IPA transcriptions and not stress about them at all, because you know exactly what they mean. And if you just look at this chart, you'll also know where they go in an articulation chart, right? They go here in these columns and these rows. But there are some crazy symbols in here, too. There's a few of them. There's those dudes. What are those guys? Yeah, they're called Theta. And I call the other one Thorn, but I'm not sure if that's actually the technically right name for it. That's a Theta. They're the ones where your tongue sticks out between your teeth. They're both spelled with a TH. But, yeah, English spelling's tricky. We use TH to spell both the voiceless one, like in thigh, and the voiced one, like in thigh. Thy hat, milady. <laughs> we don't use the word thy very much anymore. You still know it, right? And if you can hear a difference between the words thigh and thy, you can hear a difference between the voiceless one and the voice. Uh, let's what's next? Ah, that guy. Crazy end with the tail going backwards. Under palatal. Do not be afraid of that letter. If you speak Spanish, you absolutely have that sound, but you're used to writing it with a tilde over the end. So that's like in canyon, the nia, or nino, or manana, nia. Okay, so that's an easy one. And I put it in as a sound of English because English has by now borrowed so many words from Spanish. We've got that guy. We've got it, it differentiates the word canon, which is either a bunch of books that everybody should read, like the literary canon, or it's a artillery. <laughs> um, canyon is a big hole in the ground. And the um, that freaks out a lot of English speakers at first, but don't worry, because that's just the N symbol combined with the tail of a G. And in most English words that have that sound, it's usually spelled ng. Historically, those used to be pronounced nga. So it used to be kinga. 
we lost the gut in the middle somewhere. And we, we moved our nasal there for us. Yeah. How do they know historically what happened? That's a big, important, interesting question. There's a whole discipline called historical linguistics that has ways of finding it out. Yeah, no. So we don't have recordings of Middle English. We only have it in writing. But we know a lot about what sounds those guys meant to spell. Because in those days, there was no official spelling. Everybody spelled it the way they said it. So once you know what those rules were, you can actually tell from things like Beowulf, the Canterbury Tales, how it sounded. OK. So that's, that's the nasal sequence in English. Then we have those crazy guys, the F hole on the violin, and the Z with the tail. And those are shh and shh. Right. Do I have? Oh. And those, you, those reappear in our Africans. So shh. What you say to someone to shush them is borrowed sound from French. If an English word has ja in it, that word came into English from French. But we now have plenty of them. So we can say that English has And we see it in like in measure, and also like in giraffe. So that's not too bad. I already gave you the story about why it's letter J and not letter Y, right? But there are lots of languages that use J to spell the yuh sound. That's not. So, you. Could be a girl sheep, or could be a second person pronoun. And then we have the thing that looks like a question mark with no dot. And you know that one, that's the model stuff. And it's just the catch in your voice that goes between the uh and the o in the o. You use it in English, we just don't write it. Okay? That's it. So, not for class, that's it for the chart. I still have three minutes, which I'm totally going to use. I won't use the word in three minutes. Okay. Places of articulation. That's these terms. They are anatomical terms. So remember how I said this chart tells you how to say the sound in it? Okay, so the rows tell you how much to open up your mouth. And the columns tell you where to squish. So the where to squish part is the place of articulation. And to understand what those things mean, you just have to know the anatomical names. So let's take everybody a tour of our mouth with the tip of our tongue as far back as we can go, but don't make yourself choke or vomit. Right. So if you stick your tongue, well, your lips, the Latin word for lip is labia. So if you use your lips like in a bar, that's going to be called labial or bilabial because it's two. Um, if you use your teeth in a sound like, or 
That's going to have dental, because dental means teeth, right? Now take the tip of your tongue and trace the back of your front teeth up until you feel gum, and then a little higher to the place in your mouth where the pizza cheese burns it, if the cheese is too hot. That's your alveolar ridge. So a sound that's made by putting the tip of the tongue there is called alveolar. If you keep going backwards from there, you will feel a high bony arch. Can you feel it? Your dentist will say that's your hard palate. Your dentist is correct. Linguists leave off the word hard from there, we just call it your palate. So if you touch your palate with the tip of your tongue, you have to curl your tongue backwards to get it there. Right? That's called retroflexion, curling the tongue tip. Most palatal noises, like the noise shh, when you say shh, you should feel the body of your tongue rising up to but not exactly touching that area. It's going to be the body of your tongue usually that touches for a palatal sound. Now keep your tongue going backwards. I'm going to go, it falls off that hard, bony palate and gets into squishy, squishy softness back there. And this is the part where some of us will go, <coughs> and we have to stop. That squishy, squishy softness, that's your velum. Your dentist will call it your soft palate, but your linguist will call it your velum. The sound that's made there is called velar, cough, and guff, and ooh, you feel the back of the tongue. So those are... Those are the primary places of articulation for English, consonants. We'll translate them into vowels next time. I will see you.